Well, brethren, I um, would reiterate Jeff Smith's thanks to you for your fellowship that God has cast our lot in this same age and place and brought us together to see one another's face. And um, I am still a pastor emeritus, whatever that means. It sounds very grand, but um, I'm a pastor emeritus of the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek. And um, it was a special pleasure for me to serve alongside Jeff for a few years, uh, little thinking that the young man that I met with his apron denims would once be sharing the the platform with me. And and when we were thinking of inviting him to come to Florida, uh, we, he and I, after the evening service on the Sunday, we spent some time with Pastor Dekema just exploring the possibility, and I drove, was driving him home, and we experienced the worst road rage, I think, that has ever taken place in Florida. And I was glad that he was with me at the time, and uh, we were pursued by a, a woman who followed us for about a mile, I think, on a, on a flat tire. And uh, it was quite a, an interesting experience. So when I got home, I said to my wife, he'll never come to Florida. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm going to confine myself in this session to an, another Old Testament passage. So if I can invite you to turn with me, if you have your Bible available to you, to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. And I want to read at verse 15. You're all familiar with the the background Moses encounters with Pharaoh. So in the interest of time, I'm abbreviating it. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to, me, to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle, therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil. And I think I've turned over the wrong page. To this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. 
and of course he was, but uh, I can't go into the details of that. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them a command for the children of Israel, and for Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Well, we leave the passage there, but you may find it helpful if you keep it open in your Bible at that point. And I want to turn your attention to some of the lessons that we can extrapolate from this section of the historical narrative. There are illustrations, there are lessons concerning Christian doctrine and Christian experience, including the experience of discouragement. Now, my session this morning may seem a little bit disjointed, I have to share with you something, that my mother was a wonderful cook, but she never arranged the food on the plate. But it was good food. So you may find this a structured sermon this morning, or if it's a sermon, uh, and I trust, if, if it's not structured, that you'll understand that I trust it's good food. Well, <laughs> if ever anyone in Scripture experienced discouragement in his life, surely it was Moses. So if you look at chapter 4 of verse 29, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they heard what the Lord had, that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their afflictions, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, at this point in Moses' life, the work of God was proceeding according to the plan of God, And according to the timetable of God, and following all the preparations by God, and it was being accompanied by the power of God. And on a casual reading, it may appear that everything was quite encouraging and going well, but that was not the case. Because when you look at the opening of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron, under the instruction of God, had gone to Pharaoh, and with great dignity... And with God-given authority, like true ambassadors, they had spoken to Pharaoh in the name of God. And Pharaoh had responded with arrogance and contempt and total self-confidence. 
he responded by giving that classic statement of unbelief. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now that wasn't a request for information. He knew the God of Israel or he knew of him and he simply refused to acknowledge him. And then Pharaoh was given an opportunity to change his attitude, but again he refused to discuss, to negotiate, and simply accused Moses and Aaron of being the disturbers of the peace. He denigrated the message of Moses as lying words, so the working conditions of the slaves were made even more harsh and cruel. And then when you look at chapter 5 at verses 20 and 21, Moses experiences this terrible backlash as he's confronted by the elders of Israel. And they blame him for the increased intensity of their sufferings. So everything that Moses was trying to accomplish in the name of God seems to have come to nothing. And if you look at chapter 5 and verse 22 and 23, you find a tremendous picture of discouragement. So what I want to do this morning is to consider some difficult questions that can arise in the midst of discouragement and then some crucial reminders to help us to deal with discouragement. So first of all, some difficult questions that can arise in the midst of discouragement. Look at verse 22 where we see that Moses turns to the Lord in prayer. Now whether he turned to the Lord in faith or whether he turned to God in perplexity, or whether he turned to God in complaint, we don't really know. But it's quite clear that he was a man who was totally downhearted, bitterly disappointed, and discouraged. And he takes it to the Lord in prayer. And he asks the question, why? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Why have you sent me? Now, he may simply have been legitimately asking for some clarity or enlightenment because it had been an embarrassing public failure and it was a total reversal of the circumstances of the Israelites. So you can almost imagine Moses, like Elijah, being almost at the point of absolute despair. And then you look at that 23rd verse. Twice he asks the question, why? And that's the question that so many of the Lord's people ask when they're going through discouragement. Have you never asked that question in the past? Why? And perhaps it's a question that you've been asking God in the present. Well, let me remind you, first of all, of that verse in Deuteronomy 29.29, which is easy to remember because of the combination of numbers. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. Now here in these incidents in Moses' life, we are being brought face to face with some of the secret things, those things that are mysterious, which you cannot understand in the workings of God. And we're also being shown some of the things which are revealed, that are clearly revealed by God. 
If you look at chapter 5 again, verses 22 and 23, you have some of the secret things being embraced within the mysteries of God's providence. Moses cries out to God and says, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Since I've come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you haven't, and neither have you delivered your people at all. Now it's a very, very bold way to speak to God. It's almost as if he is blaming God. And Moses is a man who is sure that God had called him. And he was sure that God had sent him. He was also sure that God had commissioned him to say what he had to say, both to Pharaoh and to the Israelites. Yet everything at this point has gone disastrously wrong. And there seems to be this total collapse of any hope of redemption. Now keep in your mind that God has been preparing Moses for 80 years for this moment. He spent 40 years receiving a significant education in Egypt. And then he spent another 40 years in the school of God in the deserts of Midian. Then after 80 years, the unmistakable call of God comes to him at the burning bush where he receives a very explicit commission as to what he is to do. So having done all that he was called to do, nothing has been accomplished. And he's now face to face with the mystery of God's providence. And he's asking the question, why? So he is obviously discouraged. The work of God was about to move significantly forward. And then these circumstances, which created confusion, and they hindered and frustrated all of God's purposes. But the problem for Moses, and for many of God's people, is this. How can God's hand be in all of this what is God doing and why is he doing it that you remember was Job's predicament and I'm sure we all ask that question from time to time and you may have been at this conference asking those questions in some form or another and some of you have you've spoken to me why is God doing this why is God allowing the devil to have his way and to have the upper hand where is all this going to end How can I deal with this situation? How can I deal with these developments in my life? You remember the situation in Acts 12, where James was put to death by Herod, yet Peter was delivered from the prison. Why? Surely, if God could deliver James James, or deliver Peter, he could have delivered James. And if you were James's father or James's son you would be asking that question why why is God doing these are some of the mysteries of the providence of God it happened to Mary and Martha you remember when Lazarus was sick the Lord did not come why Hudson Taylor that great missionary to China he was laboring away with great difficulty in China working as hard as he could And then he went through a difficult period of opposition coming from his fellow missionaries. And then in the midst of all that trouble, his only daughter who had hydrocephalus, she died. And Hudson Taylor is crying out to God, asking those questions. Why? Why? And why at this time? He fully believed that he was in the center of the circle of the will of God. But the death of his daughter shook him to the very core of his being. Those things can be very, very difficult to handle. 
illness, pain, physical illness, mental disability, they can be some of the most profound mysteries in the providence of God. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, relates in his memoirs that that contributed to his becoming a materialist in his early life. He was a medical doctor. He says that he constantly saw things that as a medical doctor he could not reconcile with the idea of a merciful God. Listen to what he says. I was called in by a poor woman to see her daughter. As I entered the humble sitting room, there was a small cot to one side. By a gesture from the mother, I understood that the sufferer was there. I picked up a candle and walked over, and I stood over the little bed, expecting to see a child. What I really saw was a pair of brown eyes full of loathing and pain, and which looked up in resentment to mine. I could not tell how old she was. Long, thin limbs were twisted and coiled in the tiny couch. The face was sane, but malignant. What is it? I asked when we were out of hearing. It's a girl, sobbed the mother. She is 19. Oh, if only God would take her. Now that kind of thing has baffled people. And that kind of thing has turned many people into atheists. And it's a situation that could be multiplied thousands of times over. And some of you will face that kind of situation in your pastoral ministry and in your own personal life. I started out in Liverpool in 1966, just very, very young, inexperienced. And I remember this, I'd been preaching about something and a lady came to me. I was talking, I think, about the sovereignty of God. And she said to me, Pastor Hughes, she said, you remind me of one of my sons, I had three sons. They were all killed in different places on the same day in the last war. Can you tell me why? How are you going to answer that? You can't answer that. You can't even try to explain. There is no simple answer. It's comparatively easy to say that we are trusting God when everything is going well. But when you find yourself in a situation like Moses, it can be really difficult to trust in God. Isn't there a hymn that says, trust him when dark doubts assail thee? Trust him when your faith is small? Trust him when to simply trust him is the hardest thing of all. And sometimes we, oh, trust God. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to trust God in that situation. And sometimes we wonder why the quandary doesn't get better, it seems to get worse. And why does the Lord not intervene? And we're puzzled by his delays. And how many of us in the ministry have asked those questions concerning the state of the world, concerning revival? We see what's going on in the world. We look at the terrible state of professing churches within the nation. It fills us with a feeling of sadness. But at times it fills us with a sense of alarm. Why is it that God delays? We know that he's in control. But there seems to be no significant movement of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are left asking the question, why? Some of you may know of Dr. Sangster, the Methodist preacher. And uh, if you haven't read his book on the craft of the sermon construction, I would uh, recommend that. wouldn't recommend him in, every, in everything. But he tells the story of when he was a young boy. And uh, the school were going on holiday. 
and he asked his father and mother if he could go on the holiday with the school and the father said yes you can go as long as you save your pocket money and uh, you know make some provision yourself well he went on the holiday but he didn't save his pocket money and after a week his money ran out so he sent a postcard to his father dear dad SOS LSD that's pound shillings and pence send me money RSVP reply quickly But he said no reply came. Day after day, no reply came. And his friends were saying, well, he's probably forgotten about you. No, he said, that's not my dad. Oh, I can't be bothered with you. No, that's not my dad. Well, what do you think yourself? Well, he said, when I go home, home, I'll ask him, he'll tell me. And he said, I came home. I went in to see my father. And he said, I can still see the look on my father's face as he told me what it cost him to teach me the value of money. And he said, I've learned the value of money ever since. But he said, I had an only sister. She lived to be just 12 years of age. Eleven times in those 12 years, she went under the surgeon's knife. And he said, in the end, she had to be hidden away. People couldn't look at her. And those people that did look at her They said, if there is a God, why? And Dr. Sankster said, I was confounded as a boy and I'm confounded as a man. But whenever I'm asked that question, why? I always give the answer that I gave to my school chums. I don't know. But when I get home, I'll ask him and he will tell me. So sometimes you find yourself asking how long, why? So that's where Moses is at this point. I'm getting a bit emotional, so you have to excuse me. Well, when you look at these things, either in Scripture or in your own personal experience, it is crucial that you recognize that they are all part of the mystery of the providence of God. As I've said before, never be tempted to doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And in your disappointments or in your perplexity, never construe that those things that are a mystery to you are a mystery to him. God is never caught out by any developments that take place in your life. He's never hard-pressed to deal with them or to overcome them. There will be times when you're in difficult circumstances and you want an immediate answer without delay and without any complications. And then you've got to ask yourself, well, maybe I'm not ready at that point for the next phase of God's plans for my life. And there are times when the Lord, for good reasons, allows certain things to become increasingly worse, so that on the human level, the whole situation seems impossible. Do you remember how Abraham, there was a delay of 25 years of silence, during which he and Sarah have gone well past the age of bearing the promised child. Surely Abraham at some point must have been asking the question, why? So the situation on the human level was impossible. And if there was to be a child, God said, as God said there would be, then God had to give them the ability to have that child. So when the child was eventually born... There was no mistaking on their part or anybody else's that this was something that God has done. 
It was humanly impossible. Now, very often, the mystery of providence, you are brought to wit's end corner, and you're brought to the ultimate end of your resources for this reason, that you will see that when things do happen, it is God who has done it. It is not unto us, but to the Lord, that the glory must unmistakably be given. That was true, as we've heard earlier, of Gideon's army. Why was it reduced to 300 men? So that the glory would go to the Lord and not to Gideon. There is always a righteous necessity in everything that God does. If you read Psalm 107, it is full of incidents where God allows people to come to an end of themselves and of their own resources. And you will find repeatedly in that psalm, they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And the Lord saved them. And that cries, those cries are followed by the constant refrain. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for the wonderful works to the children of men. There is an afterwards. You will look back. Do you remember in John chapter 6 that our Lord puts Philip's faith to the test by asking him the question, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And Jesus tells us that, John tells us that Jesus said this to Philip in order to test him, not to prove him wrong in any way, but to test him because Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. It was done in order to show Philip that on the human level, this is impossible, but also to show Philip God's almighty power. Now, here in Exodus 5, Moses is being put into a situation where it seems that all hell is let loose around him. He's crying out, why, why, why? But God is doing something with him. He's proving him. Brethren, there is no suffering that you go through that is not productive of fruit, not least in yourself. God is doing something with you. And God often allows the opposition to to express itself to the full. And he has good and wise purposes for doing so. Romans 5. We glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation produces patience or endurance. And perhaps some of us are impatient when we're being tried. We're being put to the test. We may be the kind of person that has this tendency to manifest an irascible spirit. You're an irritable person, and God is going to rectify that. 1 Peter 1, now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may take a lifetime for some of us. I think that's why I'm living an old age. It's taking time for God to refine me. Though he slays me, says Job, I will trust him. Now the Lord knows your circumstances better than you do. And as I said, I think yesterday, he also knows what your breaking point is. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is more endurance in you than you think. And you can endure far more than you think you can. 
Now, the actual text of this chapter in the main is very plain, very straightforward, but the underlying implications are profound and far-reaching. And from our standpoint, it's a simple spiritual explanation for what was happening at this time. The powers of darkness are at work. And you must always remember, brethren, when you're reading the Old Testament, that you know more about the situation than the people who were going through it. Moses is writing it years after. You know what the end of the story is. They don't at the time. So keep that in mind. The powers of darkness are there, and they're not imagined. They are not some kind of obscure fiction in our mind. When God purposes to work amongst evil powers, those evil powers will organize themselves to resist the power of God with all of their might. But that does not mean that those two powers are equal or even of the same sort. Satan's powers are lying wonders. He intends to deceive. They originate from the father of lies. How often have you felt concerning your work? What is happening here? All hell is let loose. Now here is Pharaoh revealing himself for what he is and what he's become over a period of years and he has this air of egotism, arrogance and pride and simply dismisses Moses. And God often lets evil have its way so that evil will destroy itself. And sometimes that happens. You see that in politics. Why doesn't God stop this? He lets people have their way. And then eventually they destroy themselves. Sometimes he lets tyrants and dictators and politicians have their way in order that they may destroy themselves. And the devil is allowed to do his worst so that he will use up all of his strength and he will be reduced to a furious, frustrated impotence. He can't do anything. So are you in the midst of it, crying out, why, why, or how long? Well, those are some of the difficult questions that can arise in the midst of discouragement. Now look at some of the crucial reminders to help you to deal with discouragement. Three important things that I'd like to stress. When you're in the midst of circumstances that can only be described as the mystery of God's providence, what are the things that can help you? It is certainly not by you focusing upon yourself. Isn't the psalmist told numbers of times when he was downcast? Lift up your head. He's navel gazing. He's looking at himself. Don't try to make yourself feel better. That's the power of positive thinking. Some of you will remember a man named Norman Vincent Peale. And his philosophy was the power of positive thinking. So that when you get up first thing in the morning, and you go to the bathroom, and you look at yourself in the mirror, you say, the most handsome man on the face of the earth. (laughs) It's wonderful. Well, all that's rubbish. (laughs) Apart from the grace of God. So you need to compare... The teachings of the Apostle Paul were the teachings of Norman Vincent Peale. 
and you will discover something. Peel is appalling, but Paul is appealing. (laughs) Well, the psalmist also makes the interesting observation when he says, if the foundations are destroyed, uh, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11. So when the foundations of your life are shaking with everything that you're experiencing, what can the righteous do? Well, for one thing, you can look up. And another thing, you can review the lessons from the past. And as you do so, you will discover something. You will discover that what is happening to you is something that other people have experienced. And in this, ex- this situation, Moses is reminded of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does God say that? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's giving Moses the assurance that he is not alone in this experience. Others have passed this way before. And that's a crucial thing to remember, especially when you are facing discouragement and disappointment and you become aware of the extreme loneliness that that can bring. And sometimes we bring that loneliness upon ourselves because of a sense of failure or inadequacy or even a sense of shame. And we don't want to talk about it to other people. So we begin to cut ourselves off. And we avoid people. And we no longer turn to attend the minister's fraternal. And we no longer come to the pastor's conference. And so you withdraw yourself from fellowship. And that is precisely what the devil seeks to do. He will do everything that he can to isolate you from others. From your family, from your friends, from your fellow elders and so on. And you feel that nobody can possibly understand what I'm going through. And you can be so discouraged by the trial and the temptation that you don't want to be around other people. Well, I spent 13 years in a congregation that had shepherds in it. And if you know anything about shepherds and sheep and caring for sheep, they would say to you, when they go out to look at the sheep, have the sheep dog with them, If they see one sheep over in the corner, they know that that sheep is ill. There's something wrong with it. There's something wrong when you begin to hive off from the rest of the fellowship and for fellow elders and so on. The apostle teaches us that no testing has taken us but such as is common to man. You're not alone. Others have been there. Think of all the characters in scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonah, David, all of these men feeling a sense of loneliness. Let me remind you of one or two who are not mentioned in scripture, and I trust that you'll always keep reading good biographies. I can heartily recommend the little recent paperback biography of John G. Payton to the New Hebrides. Read the full volumes, first of all. I was greatly helped and still am by the life of Thomas Boston. He began his pastoral preaching work in the most remote part of Scotland in 1699. I tried to find the church years ago, driving for miles through this remote valley. No houses, nothing, just moorland. And there was the church up there in the valley. He preached three or four times every week. 
He visited every household regularly, as well as visiting those who were sick. In a remote parish that consisted of 88 souls and very few strange faces. He had no books, he had no commentaries. He struggled through the Psalms in Hebrew and also grasped even the accents of the Hebrew. He taught himself French. He mastered some of the greatest questions of theology. And during this time, he preached on those subjects that were later to become human nature in its fourfold state. Boston's fourfold state was found in the homes of most Christians in Scotland years ago. He married Catherine Brown of Colross. It was a wedded life that was checkered with seasons of light and shadow within the family home. In May 1701, Catherine's first child was due. And Boston records that Catherine had a great terror of the pains of childbearing. And he says, not without cause, for she had an uncommon share of these pains. The remembrance whereof to this day makes my heart to shrink. And before the birth of the baby, the first child, she spent time preparing herself because she knew in her heart that she was going to face the last enemy if God should do so ordain. A little girl was born, and she was also named Catherine. But the joy of the birth was marred because the little girl was born with a double hair lip. And Boston writes, My afflicted wife carried the trial very Christianly and wisely after her manner. After about six months, little Catherine began to thrive. So Boston thought it would be safe to leave her with a nurse, and he and his wife attended to some business at Catherine's family home. During their absence, Catherine, away from home, had a vivid dream in which she saw her baby perfectly restored from her disfigurement and strangely beautiful. And so striking was the dream that Thomas and Catherine Boston hurried home as soon as possible and they were greeted with the sad news that the baby had died and her death had taken place at the very hour that the dream had been given to her. Well then, the next child comes along. April 1707. Little Ebenezer was born. Ebenezer, hitherto has the Lord helped and blessed us. They rejoiced in that birth and they felt that that was a significant expression of God's favor on their home and their family and their ministry. Ebenezer died four months later and Boston says it was a grief hard to be borne. He said to bury his name, Ebenezer, was harder than to bury his body. And if Boston felt the grief so acute. You can imagine how Catherine must have felt. She faithfully supported her husband over the next 12 years. Two more children joined the family circle and two others died. She then suffered from what can only be described as schizophrenia. It distorted reality for her. She tried to commit suicide a number of times. And later she was confined to her bedroom for 10 years. Thomas Boston 
and Catherine lived to bury six of their children. Ten children, and they buried six. And despite a sea of opposition and troubles, they continued to labor on in prayer and faith, in the study of the word. And after ten years, that dogged perseverance began to have its effect upon the people and upon the preacher himself. And men and women began to feel the power of the Spirit in his preaching and in his ministry. And as a result of the publication of his sermons, he became well known and he saw great blessing. He preached his last sermon when he was 56. His health was broken. He he went up into his bedroom and they supported him from an open bedroom window. And there was the crowd of his parishioners outside. And that's when he preached his last sermon. If ever a man persevered in the ministry despite discouragements and loneliness, it was Thomas Boston. Read Boston and you'll think your problems are nothing. Let me give you one other example from Scotland. You'll gather that I ministered there for 32 years. James Fraser of Allness. There's a volume entitled The Days of the Fathers in Rossshire. Uh, Rossshire is in the north west of Scotland and the fathers are the ministers in that place. And um, maybe... Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll try and remember it for you instead of reading it. But James Fraser was a godly, godly minister. I was was actually reading the story in bed, and um, I said to my wife, listen to this. She does the crossword, but I I I said, listen to this. A a cold, hard, callous, indifferent wife was his wife. She neither loved him or his God. She starved him in the home. People used to set out little packets of food where he would be visiting for him to eat. In the cold winter evenings, she would give him no light and no heat. And he went into the bedroom where his study was so that he could escape from his wife. And he's walking up and down in his overcoat in the dark, trying to keep himself warm. Walking with his hands out like that so that he knew where the wall was at either end. And he wore a hole in either end of the walls. He then went to a presbytery meeting with a lot of ungodly ministers. And one man got up knowing the kind of situation that, Boston, that uh, Fraser was facing. He said, gentlemen, I would like to propose a toast. I propose a toast to our wives. And then winking at James Fraser, he said, you'll be able to drink to this one, won't you? Sarcastically. And James Fraser said, yes, I'll drink to that one. Oh, she said, how can you possibly drink to that one knowing your wife? He said, my wife has done me more good than all of your wives put together. She has driven me to my knees five times every day when I would never have done it. Read biographies. You've not got to go through that kind of thing, I hope. Well, read David Livingstone's life. Read the life of Alan Gardner of Patagonia. 
read all of these men, it can be a tremendous comfort just by reading their lives. Trials and temptations such as is common to man. Review the lessons from the past and then reflect on the experiences of Christ. And that's another vital principle that you need to keep at the forefront of your mind. He himself has been where you are. He knew discouragement. He knew disappointment. He's experienced all the fellow feelings that we experience. The apostolic exhortation is consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So it's a tremendous thing in the midst of your discouragements and all that they can do to know that your great high priest has been touched with the feeling of your infirmities, tempted in all points, such as you are, yet without sin. Think of the significant factors in his temptations. They were his isolation. They were his loneliness. Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness with the powers of darkness. So how did he deal with them? Listen to the words that he spoke after the resurrection. And this is very important. He said to his disciples, I go to your God and to my God. To your Father and to my Father. Why did he not say our Yours and mine, yours and mine. Consider what is said in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation. I don't know whether you've really pondered that statement, but let me remind you of what it's saying. It's of crucial importance that you grasp this. That God is not only the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in an eternal sense, the eternal Father of the eternal Son and the eternal Spirit. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ in his human frame and form. So I hope you see the profound significance of that. It means that the Lord Jesus found his soles in God as his God. He proved the glories of the Godhead himself in his human nature, in his sufferings, in his sorrows. So he more than anybody else knows your discouragement. And the one who sends you into the storm is the one who is there. He is your hiding place from the storm. Try and grasp that, brethren. There is no experience that you are going through or have been through or will be through, but Christ has experienced the full blast of it. And that's why you can draw near to him and find grace in time of need. Review the lessons from the past, reflect on the experience of Christ, and remember the character of God. And the character of God was not something that Moses was ignorant about at this point in Exodus. He's known a good deal about the character of God for some time. And you will recall in Exodus 33, Moses had just witnessed something of the glory of the Lord in the giving of the Ten Commandments. At the same time, he'd heard of the sinfulness of the Israelites as they'd engaged in an act of idolatry and debauchery there in his absence on Mount Sinai. And Moses then pitches the tabernacle far off from the camp 
and went outside of the camp and made his way to the tabernacle. Then all the Israelites stood at their tents and watched as Moses wended his way into the tabernacle. And then they witnessed the amazing sight of the cloudy pillar descending and remaining at the door of the tabernacle. And we are told that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then you are given some of the details of that astonishing conversation in which Moses unburdens his heart before the Lord, revealing his weariness. He's grieved by what the people have said and done. He's anxious about the future. Will he be able to manage as their leader? If ever a man was liable to lose heart, it was Moses. And having received the assurance that the Lord would be with him and would give him rest, Moses then makes this ultimate plea. I beseech you, he says, show me your glory. Now it's interesting to see the answer that that request was received from the Lord. He was told the Lord will make all his goodness pass before him and that he would proclaim the name of the Lord before him. And then Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock while the glory of the Lord passed by him, of which he was only allowed to see the afterglow. And he is being shown something of who God is and what God is like. And he received that vision of glory in the midst of a period of extreme discouragement, the kind that you feel from time to time. All that's going on in the world, iniquity abounding, immoral, 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 immorality, sorry, perversity, secularism, all that kind of thing. And in the secular world, but also in the religious world, the increase of false religions, the decline of true Christianity... The repudiation of sound doctrine, the establishment of false doctrine, iniquity abounds, and in that setting the love of many grows cold, and there is indifference in your church and in other churches, and sometimes even within the church there is a spirit of anarchy, and many evangelicals are being swept off their feet by the entertainers are only concerned about their own glory and frivolity within church life and worldliness within church life and coldness in church life and confusion in church life and you're in the midst of it and like Moses you need to do something vital and it is so often the case that the glory of the Lord is seen at its highest and greatest in the great experiences through which you live, the dark mysteries of God's providence. And you need to cry out to God to give you faith. And faith doesn't come by thinking about faith. You've got to cry to God to give you faith. And he will answer you in the way he answered Moses. I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Look to me. I have made a covenant with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will fulfill my purposes in your life. I am the Lord. And sometimes we can preach it, but we forget it. 
So let me close by using this illustration. Years ago, I, I lived in Glasgow for a while. In the centre of Glasgow, there is a large library, the Mitchell Library. And because of the history of the city, the whole building was almost the colour of this pulpit. All the smoke and the dirt from the city over years. And then one day, passing the Mitchell Library, you see all the scaffolding going up. And then you see tarpaulins going over the scaffolding. And then you hear all kinds of noise going on for month after month. Power washers and all the rest of it. You say, what is going on? But the day came. When the tarpaulins came off and the scaffolding was taken down. And there was the building in all its pristine glory. That is a picture of the church. We don't know what's going on. It's confusion. It's chaos. It's a mystery. But one day, it'll all be revealed. And you will realize that there will be no discouragement in heaven. What is it that kept Rutherford going on when he was banished to Aberdeen? He focused on the glories of Emmanuel's land. What is it that kept Bunyan in prison at Bedford, the eternal city? These are the things that will keep you going on. Go on, don't give up. Lift up the hands that hang down. Make a straight path for your feet and run with patience the race that is set before you. Always looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your salvation. Well, brethren, I pray these rambling thoughts will have helped you, and I pray that God will bless us all and help us to be encouraged in these days. Let me bow together in prayer with you. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, how we thank you for who you are, glorious in your holiness and fearful in praises but you are the God who does wonders and we thank you we thank you ever for saving us and making us your children and having faith in us to put us into the ministry and we look to you there are times when we are discouraged and we we regret and we repent of the sin of unbelief when we don't trust you as we should. But Lord, we know that we are battling with an enemy, but that is the enemy that you have defeated. And help us to look to you and to have confidence. Be with us now as we share our meal together, as we part company. We pray that you will watch over us while we are absent from one another. And if in your will we are able to meet again, we look forward to that day. And we ask these things in our Saviour's lovely name. Amen. Amen.